Hey everyone, welcome to the Resolutions Podcast, where we like to turn difficult topics into helpful conversations. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, along with our co-host, Michael Gum. Hey everyone. Michael, uh, today I'm pretty excited about uh, the show that uh, we're going to uh, drop and put out there for our listeners uh, because uh, it involves an interview with a person who I have so much respect for. And uh, it, it took a while to get uh, to get her lined up on our docket, uh, you know, to uh, to sit and have a chat with her. And it was so worth it. So worth it. Great. Um, we're going to talk today about uh, something that's a, a global issue, but also uh, really strikes close to home right here in our own immediate context in West Virginia. And today the subject is going to be orphans, uh, displaced children, and foster care. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, that we're at a bit of a disadvantage, I think, when it comes to giving uh, good commentary on that because you and I, we we come from intact homes, right? You and I, we've never we've never been displaced. Uh, you know, our parents, uh, thankfully, are are still together, and I I can never recall having to be uncertain about housing. I my place of living was never in question. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to uh, to worry about where my next meal is coming from. And uh, I'm not saying that uh, in a way to brag, but I do believe to whom much is given, much is required. Hmm. But uh, but at times these, you know, this is this is would be a time where we really benefit from a person who knows how to operate in that area. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think it's that's why it's great that we've got this interview lined up because uh, I mean, I've had the advantage of of listening to it already, and uh, you know, I I can just tell this is this is someone that has done her research, knows her stuff, and you know, can really uh, speak to the to the topic in a way that's that's going to enrich our conversations here. Yeah, and just to uh, give us a, a little bit of a context, what we're going to do is is we're going to start off with just some wide angle uh, statistics, and then we're going to bring it closer to home here. And uh, I think that'll set up the interview that uh, that we're going to showcase here today. So, uh, as best as we can tell, on a global level, uh, this is an estimate. There's about 153 million children worldwide that are classified as orphans. Wow. Now, and it's probably good to talk about, uh, you know, what, what does, you know, what, what constitutes an orphan in 21st century terms? Yeah. And you, you were sending me some information before we started our, our conversation here. Uh, I, I see here the, the word orphan is defined as a child deprived by death of one or usually both parents, um, the, there's some overlap here with, uh, you know, especially in the U S uh, really the, uh, the, there's not really orphanages so much anymore as that has been, fo- uh, funneled into the, uh, the, the foster care and the child welfare system. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it looks a little bit different in our country, but we're still kind of talking about the same thing. Right. And, uh, you know, just to, just to, to build on that, uh, again, another another global statistic as uh, the latest stats that we have is that worldwide, nearly 31 million children have been forcibly displaced. Oh yeah, uh, currently, and that what that can mean is, uh, you know, they have either been removed 
from their home because they have uh, been in uh, in certain danger, or their their households have been uh, under threat and they've had to go on the run as refugees seeking asylum, seeking safety. Um, you know, and without getting overly political of that, we've seen that right here in the United States. It was, you know, right before, you know, the the, the pandemic sort of, you know, takes major precedence with the headlines. Uh, there was a lot of concerns uh, at our borders, especially the southern border, uh, with children being separated from their parents displaced. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and then also in those numbers, would that uh, also include uh, those that have been displaced by uh, the aftermath of natural disasters? Yeah, exactly. You know, because uh, and and I think we I think, uh, you know, what we would call first world countries probably uh, do a, a little bit of a better job with emergency response because they've got the resources and sure. the, uh, you know, the uh, the institutions in place to do that. But for much of the world, when disaster strikes, uh, it could be days, weeks, months before you figure out who survived and where they are and how to link families uh, back together. Yeah. So already we've got a, a complex problem. You know, we, we've got multiple sources of how a, a child can be displaced and, and be brought into the to this place of, of becoming an orphan. Yeah. You know, Michael, let me let me bring that a, a bit closer to home, because I, I appreciate the fact that we have uh, listeners throughout the United States and even outside of the United States. But a, a lot of our core listeners come uh, from here in West Virginia, North Central West Virginia, Appalachia. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't know, uh, even people who live you know, in our region, is that West Virginia commonly ranks number one in displaced kids per capita. Mm-hmm. That's right. So that means our foster care uh, system is frequently overwhelmed. Uh, Caseworkers, social workers have more uh, children than they than they can really effectively know how to place. Uh, oftentimes, in in timely ways, uh, it's a it's a system that uh, with many people who have wonderful hearts toward children, but it's, it's stretched pretty thin. And the, you know, the contributing factors uh, for that here uh, in our state, especially relates back to the opioid crisis that is ongoing. Uh, That's only been exasperated uh, by, you know, the pandemic and uh, some of the isolation and stress that goes on with that. We know that that's spiking uh, the use of controlled substances, which uh, again, puts kids in jeopardy and, and sometimes gets them removed from a home or unfortunately um, you know, it, it causes a demise of a parent mm-hmm. and a kid finds himself, you know, defined as an orphan. And uh, we try to position ourselves here at resolutions counseling uh, to be a, a support uh, structure for that. Uh, we work a lot with foster parents. We work a lot with foster care agencies, uh, adoption agencies and so forth. But uh Really, you know, we would not consider ourselves uh, to be on par uh, with today's guest as far as expertise. Yeah. So with that, it's my pleasure today to introduce you, the listeners, to Kathleen Guire. Kathleen is the founder of The Whole House, which is a very unique nonprofit organization that uh, really showcases some of the most insightful and helpful instruction when it comes to, you know, really stepping in and making a lasting impact in the care of foster children and in adoption. Uh, Kathleen Guire is the mother of seven 
four through adoption. She's a former National Parent of the Year. She's an author, teacher, and speaker. And uh, more than any of those things, she's just such a down-to-earth person. Kathleen and I enjoyed a virtual cup of coffee, and we talked about a wonderful resource that she has available uh, for parents and for those who would support parents uh, who are adopting children. Talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, the whole house. Uh, what What is that? What, what What was that designed to be? Is it designed to be? What's the origin? How did it originally start? Uh, cool turn on that. Okay. So actually the whole house was my two daughters and I, I have three daughters, but only two of them were old enough at the time. We were kind of blogging together and doing things on the website together. We did some courses, some mom habits courses, some other free courses that we just put together. And we used to meet regularly and we'd meet once a year and get like a hotel room and just plan out what we were going to do on the website. So that's how the whole house started. Okay. And it was my daughters who came up with the whole house. And then it kind of morphed into adding a couple more ladies to that mix who had different backgrounds, like Jessica McHugh, who is owns the uh, SOAR Fitness Studio. And so she kind of brought the health and fitness into it. And, and then Lori Schaefer, who has a a child with a capital letter syndrome. And that's kind of how she and I bonded. So she brought that to the mix. So it was just a very diverse group. And we would talk about home, child rearing, kids with capital letter syndromes, Mm -hmm. trauma, Mm -hmm. motherhood, and all of those things. And so it got to the point where these ladies are really growing in what they are doing and they are moving forward. And of course, my two daughters have had more children since then and are very busy now homeschooling. So they kind of step back from that somewhat, although they do whenever I ask them to help me. So it is morphing into just me. Well, you know, and it's also, it's amazing the way you guys have scaled, you know, as I've been able to, to watch what you've got as far as the presentation on the website and so forth. But uh, what are the ways that uh, you and your team in the past have been able to serve parents, families, kids? Well, mostly with the podcast, a weekly podcast. And we also did online courses where we would just create a private group, do some lives, do some videos, get some chat going about motherhood, about working with kids with capital letter syndromes, about homeschooling about whatever we had decided to put on the schedule that we felt that people needed at that point. Mm. And we also did a, a live conference one year and we were hoping to continue to do that, but you know, things change, things change this year a lot. (laughs) Right. Right. And so much of that, you know, is I I feel like a, a lot of the people that I look to, uh, you know, for guidance are people who, when they step into uncertainty, like 2020 has been, how, how can you be opportunistic? Uh, right. You know, when, when things, you know, you know, when there's a, there's a, there's a block that comes up in the pathway you were going, how will you, how will you pivot? pivot. And uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so that sort of takes us to trauma-informed parenting. Uh, and by the way, we'll have all these links, uh, including your podcast links up uh, you know, in the show notes, but talk to us about 
you know, what I'm going to call the whole house 2.0 okay. uh, is, uh, you know, trauma informed parenting. Okay. Well, one of the, I'll go back to the pivot for a second. One of the things that I've pivoted in is um, the book that I wrote, how to have peace when your kids are in chaos for adoptive and foster parents is I started doing webinars this year with that book since I can't go out and all my speaking engagements have been canceled. So that's one of the pivots. And what I was doing was I would only allow there to be 10 or less people in those webinars so that I could personally connect with them and talk with them. So that's been one of my shifts is moving my things more online. Mm. And as I've done that, I've been able to connect with a lot of women who maybe didn't even know what the whole house was, Mm -hmm. but had the need of some encouragement and instruction, edification. And I've, that's why I've gone through to the trauma informed parenting, because that's more of what I do. You do not want me telling you how to exercise like Jessica would. And, you know, there's some other things that the team did that you do not want advice about those things from me. Yeah, yeah. Because that would really lead you down the wrong path. So that's been one of my pivots. And when I decided to rebuild the website, build a new website and import all the old stuff, I asked a really good friend of mine who is a foster parent who has a blog called Normalizing Foster Care, said, here are my choices of names. And she's, she said, trauma-informed parenting is really what you do. Because a lot of the sites about adoption and foster care are all sweet and sappy uh-huh. or dark and <laughs> misty. But you do instruction. That's what yeah. you do. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, that, uh, that was really, you know, the point of interest. I know when you and I first met each other, uh, through an organization, uh, the West Virginia shield task force, uh, that is really what, you know, set you apart, uh, in my thinking. And, uh, you know, even that first time I thought, you know, here's a person I've got to get to know a little better, mm-hmm. but I, even back then I thought, I gotta, I gotta get Kathleen on this, on this podcast, um, because I'm hoping it's going to be a positive, positive introduction, not just to our listening audience, but also, you know, to, uh, to really be a catalyst for people who are, uh, you know, who are in this new territory of foster parenting, of adopting, because what you just described is very accurate. It's very binary. It's, it's a one or a 10. It's like, you know, when you, when you Google that, you're going to to go to sites uh, that are either um, they're either government uh, right. <laughs> produced yeah. or or placement agencies that are just like the slick glossy you know presentation of you know this this storybook uh, you know uh, idea of adoption or it's the opposite end of that with nothing but but horror stories uh, you know yeah. and so. So, you know, one of the things that, that I, that I pitched and I thought would be uh, super fun, uh, you know, for us to, to maybe just as a, as a first conversation here, um, to do is to talk through a really super helpful book, uh, and you've written several, several books. We'll have, uh, those links of course, uh, on the show notes. Uh, but the one that caught my eye was five things adoptive parents don't tell you. And, uh, and that's a that's a, a resource that's available online. You can you can uh, download that in a variety of, of ways. 
but uh, if it's okay, Kathleen, I, I'd like for us to to sort of talk through that book because it is a very very unique um, resource that uh, that is not just for adoptive parents, but it's also for those who have relationships, you know, with people who are considering right. adopting. Right, because it starts out, if you're an adoptive parent, this is for you. If you are a friend of an adoptive parent, this is for you. If you are thinking about adopting or fostering, this is for you. And if you want to know how to support adoptive and foster families, this is for you. Uh, so uh, so let's, let's jump in the book. Let's jump right okay. into it. So uh, things adoptive parents don't tell you. Okay, so um, you start with a very positive perspective, Kathleen. So, so walk our listeners, you know, through the, the, the idea of the five things, like how did you narrow that down, you know, to five, how, what was your thinking when you first started to put together this resource? Okay. So interestingly enough, this started as a blog series years ago, and I narrowed these five things down by talking to other people, talking to my children adopted and not adopted and just, you know, put it through those filters of what they thought other people should know. And there were many dinner conversations at my house about what was the most important and what people needed to know. Going through the adoption process and thinking one thing and finding out it's something totally different is very eye-opening. But I think that you had mentioned before, if you get on these, some of these websites, everything is so negative. Mm. And I just want people to know that even though like number one is adoption is hard work. Yeah. And if adoption is hard work, you know, how many things do we do to accomplish a goal that are hard and why shouldn't adoption, it can be positive and hard at the same time. Mm. And I think it's very important to know that. And if you're entering the adoption realm or the foster care realm and you think, well, as long as it's easy, I'll do it. Well, there's nothing worthwhile doing that's that's easy. You know, running a marathon is a great thing to do, but it's not easy. Right. Right. You know, taking care of your yard is, you know, it's nice to have a, a beautiful yard, but it's not easy. Anything, you know, writing a book is a great thing to do, but it's not easy. So yeah, this book is tiny, but it took years and years of sifting through things to figure out what I should put in here to give a very long-winded answer to your question. Uh, that's, that's, I think that says a lot. And, you know, um, the other thing is you're giving, you know, um, a bit of a peek into the psyche of a, of a foster adopted child, you know, through the in, in this book, which I think is just right. so valuable. Uh, you use a, a metaphor of an old fashioned pressure cooker. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, so I'm, I'm old enough. I know exactly what, <laughs> I know exactly what that is, but uh, talk, talk about that. So you young people who don't know what these are, it's this giant metal pot with a little tiny metal knob on the top that once the pot, the lid is on, it starts heating up that little metal piece starts wiggling. Okay. And so my mother had one of those. And um, whenever it was on, we had better not be in the kitchen because she was always afraid that it was going to blow. Just so you know, it never blew. But anyway, but that's what a kid is like. A kid who has had trauma is like that pressure cooker 
they have all of this stuff inside the pot that you cannot see. All of this trauma, all of these triggers, all of these emotions, all of these feelings, all of this feeling like I'm not worthy to be here. And that little metal thing on the top is always going. It's always their pot is full of steam and you don't know when they're going to blow or why they're going to blow or what's going on inside because these kids have not been taught to use a voice or that they have a choice to use a voice. So that is why I use the pressure cooker and they will use different ways of trying to cope with their trauma. And I mentioned in the book, my youngest one snorting like a horse on my yeah. hair yeah. while waiting in the line to try on his swimming suit. And I'm like, is there a deer behind me? You know, anybody in our state knows what a deer snort sounds like. Right, right, right. You walk out your front door and there's a deer snorting on your front lawn. And so they will develop these coping mechanisms like a pressure cooker and you have to learn what their signals are and then begin to teach them new coping mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, just to, to build on this a little more and, and, uh, cause I really, I, I love your insight on, you know, what does a child need through a prolonged transition period, you know, from what was to what is to what could right. be. And, uh, you know, there, there is a, there's a, there's sort of a, a middle balance of, of helping a kid learn how to, uh, we would say, uh, self soothe mm -hmm. within, you know, because you're not going to just alleviate all the pressure and feel like everything is going to be 100% okay now. Uh, right. you know, so there's this balance of, you know, you've got to keep some sort of normalized uh, structure in place that challenges a kid in the right way. So they're so they're building resilience without being exasperated. Right. Yet at the same time, you you want to avoid the situations that are just going to overwhelm a child that's been through some very unfortunate circumstances at a young age. So. Um, so respond to that. I, I feel like right. I'm a little all over the place there, but, but talk to us about that. 100% exactly. You know, on the one hand, I will just start with the behavior. Don't make it about the behavior. That's what, you know, that's the first thing. And I understand I've went, you know, I've experienced many, many behaviors for my children, but if you make it all about the behavior, just tell me how to change this behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with any human being. It's not all about the behavior. It's about what's going on inside. So it's going to be baby steps. And like you said, regulating the environment. I give the example in the book of taking my son, who was a teenager at that time, to um, a museum mm. in a big city on a field trip. And his class had been studying all of this information and he was not participating. Okay, so regulating the environment for him after that field trip was we are not going to go to any more large cities this year. If they go to another field trip like that, we are not going. We will go on the field trips that are outdoors where there's hiking, he can move, um, um, where he can begin to regulate through movement. So it's finding out what your children, how they regulate, what baby steps they need to take to regulate, and then beginning to explain to them, how do you feel after this? 
See, maybe if you get up and walk around the room, you'll feel a little bit, bit better. Or maybe if you step outside for a minute, you'll feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But that is the ending stages of handing over the coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do at the beginning is what's called co-regulation. Mm-hmm. What most children get when they're toddlers and they're early preschool is co-regulation, where they're hungry. Mom says, hey, it's lunchtime. Let's let's sit down and eat. Or, you know, they're cold. So mom puts a sweater on them. A lot of kids that have had trauma in their backgrounds never got that season of Mm -hmm, mm co-regulation. So they need it even if they're a teen. So your stepping stone is co-regulation. You do it with them, you do it for them, and then you begin to alert them slowly. Hey, you could do this yourself. Or, you know, you could drink your water after, you know, set a timer on your watch. Like another field trip my son took that I couldn't go on. And I had another friend who was also an adoptive mom to be in charge of him, even though he was a teenager at this time too. And she calls me, they're hiking and it's hot out on this field trip. And she calls me and she said, Hey, he hasn't, he's not drinking his water bottle. And I think he's going to get dehydrated. And I said, well, you have to tell him to drink his water bottle. So those sorts of things, that's co-regulation. And it doesn't matter the physical age. There's always an emotional age that you need to be paying attention to first. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, those are great examples. And and I, I want to draw that back around to just the first uh, chapter uh, in your book. And, and what you lead with is this is hard work. Parenting yeah. in and of itself is hard work, right. but when you take in a child, uh, you know that has had a uh, a start outside of your family of origin, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what all trauma that child might be bringing into, you know, the home environment. Success stories really come back to the parents, the caregivers' willingness to dig in, to research, to understand, because this is not a Disney movie. Right. Uh, you know, your good intentions and love uh, does not just overcome, you know, what is the, the residual effect of the trauma those kids have been in. Exactly. I mean, it's fair for me to say that, right? Exactly. Right. Well, and I think that w- what you just said is about the parents, the caregivers doing the research. We have to we have to form new grooves in our brain about parenting. We have to leave what we know behind and adapt ourselves to a new way of parenting because traditional parenting does not work with these kiddos at all. Mm -hmm. First of all, because they're not connected to us and -hmm. traditional parenting relies on connection and a child wanting to please you. Mm -hmm. And as much as you would like this newbie coming into your home to be like, oh, thank you. I love you. I want to please you. That's not the way it is at all. Right. And so you have to you have to, as a parent or caregiver, form those, do the research, form new groups in your brain, figure out new ways. And you have to be willing with each child to pivot constantly, differently. Mm-hmm. One child is going to respond one way and another child will respond another way. You know, just like in your own kiddos, they respond differently. But this is a whole new level. Yeah, so so true. Uh, you know, and, and the, the second point in... Uh... In your book, what parents should know is uh, what you see in public is not an accurate picture of your home life. 
Okay, so that is a huge one I ran into. So go back to the belief for changing the new grooves that you know in your brain, whatever, for a second. Where I ran into the most obstacles with this, what you see in public is not an accurate picture of our home life, was unfortunately at church. Because for some reason, church people thought that my kids got this brain wipe as soon as they came home and they were going to know the scripture and behave in children's church and do all of these things. And so I would have varying and all of the examples I give in the book where I say true story, most of those stories were my stories from my family. And so you may see in public a child who is quiet, who stands alone, And you're thinking, and I got this all the time about one of my kiddos, he's so well-mannered, he's so behaved, but the, the exhaustion that particular child felt at hypervigilance while out in public would all come to a head at home when he would become violent and melt down and throw things and break things. And it's the same child Mm. or the opposite where you would have a child who, you know, gets in trouble. And I, true story, would get in trouble every single week in children's church, every week, talking to the children's church pastor. We're going to have to kick him out again. We're going to, and that should not be, I may be going out on a tangent here, but churches need to be trauma informed. Hmm. They need to understand that what they're seeing is not an accurate picture of what the child is feeling or going through or responding to. They're responding to sensory overload. They're responding to, I cannot function with all of these, all this noise and these people. Therefore I am going to jump up on the stage and scream or act out or do something. So, and At the same time, when all of these kiddos go home from school or a party or church or whatever, there's it's a whole different ball game for these kiddos because that's when they feel they're beginning to feel secure and safe. So they will act out. Right. And and that's what other people are not seeing. So I say in the book, you know, pay attention to the mom, ask her questions. And if she starts crying or she's just starts saying, you know, this is not, nothing is going well, or, or you're five minutes into the field trip and she's on her second cup of coffee. You know, that might be a sign that something else is going on and adoptive parents are famous for not asking for help, which we need to. But, you know, many times that when I asked for help, people would say to me, well, you're the one who adopted those kids. That's your yeah. choice. You you know, live with it, you know, whatever. So um, does that answer your question? I know I'm really good at going down rabbit holes. You're great. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. I, you know, if you know anything about the podcast, we, we love conversational uh, type okay. of, of back and forth. And uh, in your book, as you're, as you're taking us on this journey, uh, one of your points here are our children are not excessively thankful. Right. Sometimes quite the opposite. So talk about that. Well, and I had kind of touched on that for a second is, you know, how the people at church thought that my kids would get a brain wipe. And I actually had this woman shortly after the adoption, she just came up to me and said, oh, I bet your kids are so thankful and so grateful. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're not going to be. They, first of all, they don't have 
the brain function to understand what is exactly happening. You know, we understand because we go through the adoption process, we go through the interviews, we go through the home study, we go through all that. And all of my kiddos got was an attorney showing up at the orphanage, showing them pictures of this couple from another country saying, hey, these people want to adopt you. Well, they don't even know what the word means. The right. younger ones didn't know what that means. Do you, yeah. And, you know, they were trying to get a verbal agreement just for, you know, to put on paper. And so when you think about that, you have to picture from the mind of a child. The strange couple shows up at the orphanage. They move in with their other kiddos and they say, we're going to take you home. And they do take you home and you have to ride on you know, what part of family do they understand? What part of adoption do they understand? Especially if they came from a traumatic beginning, the word daddy or the word mama does not mean the same thing to them as it would mean to a secure child from a loving family. So maybe they don't want that experience again. And then when they do come home and they begin to feel comfortable enough that all of that, you know, they have all the triggers that we were just talking about, and all of the behaviors start coming out. And they, you know, I give the example in the book of Gregory, who used to say every night at bedtime, I'm going back to Poland. And he would say it with vehemence. That little boy was only six years old at the time. But man, he sounded like Darth Vader. He could bring it. He, and, you know, with anything, he would say, you know, in the middle of the day, Dad, you say you play ball with me. Not, will you play with me? Yeah. Yeah, That was a long, long time coming. So no, there was nothing about gratefulness and thankfulness. They didn't have the ability. And even now, my kids who are adulting, they don't come home and say, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, they don't. They come home and say, hey, let's talk about politics. Let's get in a discussion. You yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, I, you know, as you're, as you're explaining that, and of course, as I've had the benefit here before our conversation to really read the book, the soak in the, in the points that you're making, you know, I think it's, it's all in expect, expectation orientation, you yes. know, when it comes to, you know, not just being realistic with, okay, here's, here's the beginning point of, of where we may be starting with each child. Each child is unique, individual. Their backstory is somewhat the same, but very different. Uh, and then also, you know, being able to, to understand uh, what are the fundamentals of a process that can set the family up for, you know, the best space possible to, to be a life-changing environment for a foster child, for an adoptive, uh, an adopted child, which really centers on parenting. And you talk a lot about, you know, there is a different type of parenting that goes on if you're going to be intentional, you know, as, uh, you know, as, as you're trying to, to shepherd, as you're trying to guide, as you're trying to be a facilitator of healing uh, in the lives of, of these, you know, very delicate psyches that you've brought into your home. Uh, and you make a, you make a, a couple of really good points here that, that I'd like for you to, to share with our listeners. And that is uh, sometimes, you know, adopted uh, families, parents with foster children, they may seem a, a little strict or a little too rigid, where really it's it's a part of being a very intentional and focused with the process. So uh, talk about that. 
Right. And that was something that I really struggled with because I got a lot of judgment from other people, as do other adoptive parents, because you have worked for years at forming this connection. And I'll just backtrack here for a second. I think it's very important when your kiddos first come home that you cocoon Mm -hmm. and that you stay out of the world for as long as possible. I think Dr. Purvis says like three months where you drop all your commitments as much as possible. And so you're forming that connection. You're working so hard at forming that connection. And then you get to the point where you're going to let your kiddos begin to go out in the world and it's hard for other people to understand they will need to be watched a little more carefully. They need to be monitored a little more carefully. And that's where the judgment comes in because, and I would even hear it from family members. You need to give them a little more freedom. You need to let them do this a little bit more. It's not that bad. It's not, well, you don't understand what's birthed out of that, those, that kind of freedom for a kid who can't regulate or who gets triggered easily, or who has no cause and effect, just forest fires, true story, stealing from a neighbor, true story. You know, all of those things, they're serious that can lead to more dire consequences later on in their life. So you've got to pull that in and keep them close to you and do things with them. And I shared in the book when two of mine were teenagers, this was right after church, with no text, no communication, waiting out in the parking lot for 20 minutes. My two teenagers did not come out. And so then I get a call from a parent saying, hey, your kids are at my house. So I drove over to that house, standing on the back porch with this dad who was like six foot six, telling him, my face is red, I can feel the tears coming, like my kids have to come home. You know, they did not ask permission. They did not text. I did not know where they were. And, oh, yeah, they're fine. They're, you know, they can stay. And my boys were so mad at me because I took them home. But I had to. And the reason I had to is I had finally established that connection and that let's listen to mom or we get a consequence voice to keep them safe. Because that simple outing at a friend's house and a friend that I trusted could next week be, oh, mom, mom didn't make us go home then. So let's go climb the water tower with our friend next week. Right. Or, right. you know, let's go camping in the woods and start a fire and not tell her, you know, those mm-hmm. sorts of things can escalate very, very quickly for kids who have no cause and effect. So from an outsider, it looked like I was being overly strict, but I knew what I was doing. And let me just say that, please trust the parents, the parents who have studied and connected and researched and spent so many selfless hours, trust them. Don't question them because you are not in their shoes and you don't know what those kids are doing or what they're going through. And I don't mean doing in a bad way. They can be growing and they can be making progress. And that progress can be under a totally different framework than you're used to seeing. Such excellent points. Uh, really, really well put. Uh, you know, in the interest of time, and and I want to be sure, you know, 
one of the things we really try to do with a podcast, Kathleen, is we want to be catalytic. So when we have a, a guest on here of high caliber like you are, uh, we want to make sure that we're driving people to the, to the source of the resources. And uh, so with this, uh, with the book that we're talking about today, uh, that middle chapter, five things adopted children would like to tell you, uh, mm-hmm. we're going to encourage our listeners, if, if, if the subject thus far has grabbed your attention, uh, then go to the show notes. Uh, you'll find your way to Kathleen's website, the, 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 the free book that we're talking about today. I think our listeners will find that chapter super, super helpful and interesting. But let's let's you and I jump to the last portion of the book, five things you can do to help an adoptive foster family. Let's uh, let's talk through that here uh, with the remainder of our time. How about that? Okay. so um, one of the things that you have to remember when someone is adopting, like one of the the people that I have been able to kind of talk her through this process, she did not have any biological children. So therefore, when it got to the point where she knew that she was getting a placement, she said, well, you know, is it okay to have a shower? And yes, have a shower for a foster or adoptive family, because when you are giving birth to a child, people are celebrating. They're like, oh, what do you need? You need a car seat. You need blankets. You need diapers. Well, a foster and adoptive family, they need those things too. But first of all, they're intimidated. They don't want to ask because they're often judgmental statements. Well, ignore those. Have a shower and ask the family, what do you need? You know, my church threw a shower for me. And at first, the lady who was organizing it wanted it to be all toys. And I'm like, no, no, I need paper towels. I need Clorox wipes. (laughs) I need toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was pre-COVID. We really needed toilet paper. So have a shower. And then here's another biggie, um, fill in for the family commitments while they get acclimated. Oh, yeah. I talked about the family cocooning. The worst mistake you can make whenever you bring these kiddos home is to immediately overwhelm them by taking them to Disney World. Oh, I've wow. talked to so many uh, adoptive families who did that and couldn't figure out why their kids were kicking and screaming the whole time is you need to cocoon, you need to be a family, you need to, so whatever commitments the foster or adoptive family has, fill in for them. You know, take a snack for soccer, host the book club at your house this time, whatever, because they need that time. And that can be your way. Not everybody's going to foster, not everybody's going to adopt, but the mandate in James 127 is that we all help with the widow and the orphan. Mm, So So if you're not going to adopt or foster, or, you know, that's just not something that you can do, you can help a foster or adoptive family. So you can do your part that way. Mm -hmm. Now, let me, let me go over this one. Don't judge the parents by the child's behavior. I had mentioned that, you know, my church kind of, I don't know, I became national parent of the year. And then all of a sudden I adopted. And then I'm the worst parent of the year. Because I was very much judged by my child's behavior, my children's behavior at church mm. and, and other functions at homeschool group and every other function, sports, all of those things. All of a sudden, I had become the bad parent because my children could not regulate. So I just say, 
there's a need behind that behavior. And if you look at it that way, instead of that child is behaving badly or not socially acceptable, you say that child has a need. We need to figure out what that need is. And if we can't figure it out, then mom's sitting over here on the sidelines. Let's go get her. Let's, you know, she's been parenting these other children. That was the thing that really threw me. Wait, I've been parenting these first three children and successfully, not perfectly, but successfully. And now all of a sudden, because this child can't regulate on the soccer field and he is kicking somebody on the other team, I'm suddenly the bad parent. Let's look at what the real issue is. The real issue is that child can't regulate. Let's help him. Let's figure out what's going on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's talk about the reverse of that. Um, I, I think a lot of our listeners are probably, at least on an elementary level, uh, aware or educated about what we would refer to as attachment issues or attachment disorders. But sometimes we, in our minds, we imagine, uh, you know, an attachment disorder looks like uh, recoil on the part of the child or a lot of uh, really uh, socially inept, awkward types of behavior. But the exact opposite can be true, right? Exactly. Of a child. Uh, and, uh, and you mentioned that in your book as well. Right. Because a child can have superficially engaging behavior instead, which makes him the life of the party. But also that particular child doesn't know any social boundaries. Like I had one who every time the piano teacher showed up at our house, which we had to change the way that worked, she would jump on his lap and want him to snuggle her. And that was not his, you know, that was not his job. And we had to change that to, we went to another location for piano lessons and he remained our piano teacher. But though, you know, it's very confusing because you're right. We think it's recoiling, but there's all kinds of different attachment styles. There's disorganized, there's ambivalent. And, you know, what we're aiming for is secure. So, just because a child is engaging and talking to you and wants to hold your hand, wants to sit on your lap. And a lot of people think, oh my goodness, this child is so well adjusted and so attached. And that is not true. It's the opposite. And I remember when, and this is an example of a biological child, when my niece said when her little one was going to the nursery at church, she said, I don't, I can't get him acclimated. He cries every time I leave him. I said, that is a good sign. Mm. He is very attached to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I would have foster parents tell me he's doing really well. He doesn't cry when I leave him in the nursery. That is a bad sign. If he's a baby, Right. he needs to cry when you leave. He needs to be attached enough to you that whenever you leave, you are his security and his security is leaving. Therefore, I am going to cry. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, again, that's a that's an upside down counterintuitive thought for families who are parenting with intention with their own biological children. Right. You it know? is. And and so it's a it's a whole different uh you know, paradigm shift that has to happen, uh, not just for the adopted family, but for those in community with that family who want right. to be a support, which uh, is so, so very important. And that's, that's, that's what I love about the summary of, uh, of your resource of your book here, Kathleen, because it really does uh, 
you know, give the reader uh, not just an overview of some things to consider, you know, when it comes to adoption, when it comes to foster care, but also if you've, if you've not taken that step into that arena, or if you just are wondering, what can I do? How can I support? Those are sort of the introductory uh, points that uh, they get your mind churning and hopefully drive you to go deeper with the subject matter. Right, because if it's something you've never thought about, this will give you something to think about. Yeah. And often when we're not in that adoption or foster care realm at all, we don't think about these things. So yeah. this will give you something to think about. And I just want to say one thing about the second chapter, um, five things your adopted children would like to tell you. These are from my children. These were workshopped together at the dinner table, like I said. And so if you want to hear what an adopted child has to say, there it is. All right. So, Michael, uh, in my opinion, another home run as far as a guest that we've been uh, blessed to have on our podcast. Yeah. So much uh, knowledge there. You can just tell that we just are scratching uh, the surface of it. We're going to have, again, uh, Kathleen's contact, uh, you know, her organization, the whole house. We will have all of those uh links in our show notes today. And, you know, one thing that I want to do, you know, as we, um, as we wrap up today, I want to make a few comments uh, just to underscore again, um, some helpful things that people may need to know who are considering, uh, you know, stepping into the process of adoption, maybe going into the foster care uh, system first, and then uh, just maybe a word of encouragement here as well uh, from, uh, from scripture today. How's that sound? That sounds great. You know, one thing I would say um, as a counselor who tends to work uh, with uh, systemic issues uh, with families who have uh, been involved with foster care and ultimately adoption is, is to understand and to set expectations when it comes to um, state organizations that are there to sort of put kids in safe homes and then even also adoption agencies. Um, you know, the thing is, I think a lot of people think that um, their idea is that uh, they are going to rescue a child who is in distress, and this child is going to be so grateful uh, for them riding, you know, in on their white horse and sweeping them out of chaos and bringing them into a home of kindness and grace and blessing, and that is just not a realistic expectation. Yeah, I think the uh, the interview was a good reality check there. Yeah, and and uh, you know that is not to discourage people from stepping into that space, but what we would encourage people to do is to have a good strategy and to understand that the type of duress uh, you know that a child has been through, just through the instability of a home, the lack of security, maybe rejection, uh, just overall. Uh, maybe being overlooked with negligence produces a variety of uh, mental health issues and influences the way that they perceive the world. Most of the time, uh, we are receiving these children who are in survival mode. That's not a, a, an, a, an insurmountable task uh, to step in and to help them and to guide them into a, a healthy space physically, 
mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, but you need to have a plan. And we would encourage you know you to research and do diligence, especially with an organization like the Whole House and Kathleen, because they can educate you on issues of attachment disorder, mm-hmm. for example, or you know different types of coping that kids will do just out of an effort to survive. And also just to place reasonable expectation on the support that, for example, the DHHR may or may not be able to give when it comes to placements, especially when we're talking about an organization, a state organization that is stretched so thin to begin with. And the same would go uh, for adoption agencies as well. Um, Many times it's the idea of if we can just get kids into a safe home, we're going to trust that the parenting in that home will figure it out. And sometimes that's a good assumption and sometimes that's not a good assumption. So we hope that today's podcast, if that is you or as if you've got a friend or a relative that's in the middle of fostering or adopting or you're considering it, that today will be very catalytic in how you approach that or how you support others. Another thing that I want to do just quickly here as we wrap up is I do want to touch on what I think one of the most significant passages in the Bible that refers uh, to caring for kids who are orphaned and displaced. And it comes to us uh, through a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a church that he was very fond of in an ancient city named Ephesus uh, that is located in what is now modern-day Turkey. And this, this church had a very special relationship with Paul. Uh, the letter that he wrote to them uh, is one of the more heavier theological letters that, that is there in the Bible to unpack. And uh, as Paul does, typically, uh, he really lays on uh, the theology very thick at the onset of a letter. And then he takes the rest of it, uh, the letter, to sort of explain, you know, the goodness that comes along with the love of God and our position in Christ. And one of the things that he describes in this opening to this uh, church in Ephesus coming from Ephesians chapter 1, he says that uh, he wants to praise God because of God's love, because God has predestined us to adoption as children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of God's will. And, you know, that's, that should speak to each of us because, uh, you know, spiritually, you and I have talked about this before, Michael, uh, we come into the world deadened in our senses you know, in our, uh, as far as our, our ability to, to pick up or to synchronize with the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's said that we need to be born again. Yeah, born again. And it might sound a little harsh that the Bible tries to frame things as far as there are people who have spiritual life and people who have yet to step into spiritual life. I think the, the common belief, and it's understandable, it's rational uh, in, in our society, is that in order to step into a, a, a vibrant relationship with God is you got to really be intent on being a good person. Uh, you can't get close to God or expect God to bless you if you're not intent on individually being accountable by just being a good person. 
that makes sense, but that's really not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches not that God makes bad people good. The Bible actually teaches that God makes dead people alive. Mm-hmm. And this was what he has shown us, you know, throughout some of the more epic storytelling that's there in the Bible, especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, in order to help us understand that, even a little further on a deeper level, God compares what happens when a person comes to faith through Jesus Christ as to an adoption, mm. which is sort of cool. Yeah. Uh, because that is a, that's not only being welcomed into a family of privilege and blessing, but it's also allows us to understand that the deity that we are intent on worshiping, the deity that we depend upon uh, for grace in our lives, doesn't just consider himself our God, but he wants us to know that he is our father. Yeah. Someone should write a worship song about that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And and the significance of, I think, of what the Apostle Paul is writing here uh, can escape us uh, in, in modern day thinking because adoption in the ancient world was really a little different than, than how we frame it or how we've come to know it here in the modern world. Uh, some of our listeners may not know this, but you could Uh, apply for adoption as an adult in the ancient world. Uh, Many people who, uh, you know, found their way into safety by servanthood or just finding, you know, a good household to serve and to work in, uh, you know, had such a relationship uh, with that, uh, with the the master of that home that, uh, that ultimately they would take that person in as one of their own. And if, uh, if under Roman law at that time, you were officially adopted, then you had full legal status and all the privileges of the family that you were adopted into. There was no blessing that was withheld from you. And uh, I think that that's so important when we realize um, that, you know, that, that not only can we come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that forgives us and cleanses us of our sin. But it does, again, it redefines who we are. We are now considered a child of God. God considers us one of his kids. And in so doing, we have every privilege and every blessing as his child. Mm -hmm. And we know the firstborn of God is Jesus Christ himself. And for Jesus to welcome us into his family that is something that is very endearing. And significantly enough, you will not find any sort of orphanage or any sort of foster type of care network. You will not find any sort of networking or system for rescuing children in permanent places until the origin of the Christian church on planet earth. Mm. My point is that God's heart is toward children, toward orphans, towards kids who have been displaced. And there are those in God's kingdom who he moves to step in to that space and to be that source of immediate rescue for them. There are those in God's kingdom who who serve as support you know, for those families who open up their homes. There are those uh, in God's kingdom who finance that because that's a 
significant financial commitment that families make to adopt. And there are those that God has placed, I believe, uh, in, um, in social worker settings, um, caseworker settings to help really transition kids into homes in safe ways. But whatever it is, wherever you find yourself today, we want to be a source of not just education, but encouraging you to be a part to be a part. There's a need. There's a need here, of course, in West Virginia that we've highlighted, but beyond that, there's a there's a national need and there's a global need right now for people to consider prayerfully what role they may have in caring for orphans. So, Michael, uh, again, we want to uh, redirect our listeners uh, to the show notes, especially if today's show has touched your heart. You will find Kathleen Guire to be a wealth of information uh, and her website, uh, you know, her social media platforms, again, are, are not just uh, challenging, but they uh, provide thought-provoking resources that really equip, empower, and strengthen people to step in and to make a difference in the life of kids who are without parents, who are without a home. Um, and with that, I think we can close up this episode. So thanks again uh, for making us a part of your normal uh, podcast media consumption. If you've not subscribed to the Resolutions Podcast, we encourage you to do so. And we also encourage you to, to share this podcast with others. Uh, we desire to encourage as many people as possible in a helpful way that comes to listeners free of charge. Thank you once again for joining us. So until next time, I'm Chris Campbell. I'm Michael Gum. We'll catch you back here at the next episode.